This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. You didn't already know, my name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life. Glad to see you this morning. Hey, we are going to continue our series in John talking about uh, eternal life and specifically about how that eternal life uh, is spoken of throughout the book of John in this sense of uh, expectancy of the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in us in this present time so that we're throughout the book of John, every time we come across, we stumble across the word life, uh, we understand here that he's not just simply talking about biological life. In fact, specifically, uh, in the original Greek, the word bios uh, for physical life, from which we get our word biology, the study of life, uh, does not appear. Instead, we are using the word sozo uh, and zoe, uh, words that are refer to the, a kind of quality of life. And then uh, throughout that text, there is oftentimes the qualifiers of what kind of sozo, what kind of Zoe life, and and those uh, words appear again and again as eternal life and on occasion as abundant life, but the sense of expectation that as the Holy Spirit is at work within us, as God's life is being lived through us, as we continue on the way, that He is infusing our life with His power, with His presence, He's changing us, And so the idea throughout the book is less about you and I getting into heaven by good behavior and so much more the focus being that we get eternal life infused into us so that we become the expression of heaven. We become the expression of the kingdom and therefore the invitation to others that through us they might see Jesus, that we don't make the, um, you know, the, the sad kind of, Uh, commentary that is often accompanying modern Christianity in which we say, oh, don't look at me, only look at Jesus. And instead, we are invited into the kind of life that the Apostle John talks about or that the Apostle Paul talks about when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, that this, as a satisfied customer, as one who has been transformed by the by the power of Christ at work within me, as my life is being lived out and worked out through the power of the Holy Spirit, that there is something that looks wholly different than bios kind of life. There is a kind of life that is expressed through me and in me. There's a kind of joy, there's a kind of expectation that I have that the kingdom of God is present in my life and that the world around me should be able to see, hear, and experience through me as the Spirit of God lives in me. It is a wholly different kind of thing than just going to church. Today, we are going to continue uh, this uh, Time at the triumphal entry. Actually, we're specifically, last week we got into the triumphal entry just a little bit, uh, and today we're looking kind of at a postscript about the triumphal entry. Now, this is John's commentary on those events. If you'll remember, if you were here with us last week, if you weren't, I'll just point out to you that as we look at the, uh, the triumphal entry uh, there in the, or what's often called Palm Sunday events, Uh, that typically, as we look at the other Gospels, the focus is on the events themselves and and what those things were communicating. Uh, Instead, in John, he spends a lot of time looking at those events in light of Messianic texts, looking uh, specifically at the Old Testament in Zechariah and Isaiah. Uh, Last week, we primarily talked about the text in Zechariah. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about these two texts in Isaiah and how that Jesus was fulfilling those things in that moment, in the heat of the situation, and yet the reality was this, that even his own disciples did not really understand, and it was only upon their reflection, their hindsight, that gave them insight to what actually took place that day. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump into the text. We're in John chapter 12, beginning in the middle of verse 36. 36b, if you will, uh, although it doesn't say that in your Bible, uh, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to find, your, find it with that help. 
So if you're using phone or tablet, please do me the favor, set that to silent. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version. You follow along in whatever translation you have in your lap. That's my favorite one today because you're reading it. Let's take a look. John 12, 36, and we read these words. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they could not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees him who sent me, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Well, most of this uh, reflection, you know, is, is John is uh, writing this to us. Uh, it's years later, and he's reflecting on those events. He's wanting to convey to us uh, what those events were really about and, and recording them for posterity's sake in, in the sense that you and I, here we are, uh, two millennia later, uh, reading that text, some for the first time. Some of us have read it many times Uh, but still learning along the way. I don't know about you, but every time I open the Word and I read, I am amazed at how the Holy Spirit will just bring things to light, show me things, teach me things that I've never seen before. Other times, just sitting with other people who are full of the Holy Spirit of God, and they will say something, new believer, mature believer, and they'll say something, and man, I go, wow, I just heard the voice of the Lord in that moment. Most of this reflection, then, is a contrast between the overwhelming evidence that God has provided and the rejection of that evidence by God's people. Let that soak in for just a moment. I think sometimes when we read these things and we read about the rejection, what we're thinking about is we're thinking about, like, you know, Everybody on the outside rejecting. We're thinking about people who are far from God. Uh, Sometimes even we are dismissive of the people who are gathered around. Sometimes I think that Christians are often dismissive of the Jews. Not if you ask them, of course not. but, But there is something that's kind of undergirding sometimes that runs through modern Christianity where oftentimes there's a little bit of a superiority complex in our thinking. As if, you know, like, so we're in the know, and clearly, I mean, if I had been around, I'd have, I'd have recognized it, I'd have seen it, you know, uh, as if. But instead, what we see from, all the way from Genesis, uh, uh, going through, especially once you and I get to the prophets, right? Not just the major prophets, the minor prophets, uh, all the prophets. Uh, What we see in the prophets, the role of the prophets is to remind Israel of everything that was in the first five books. You just 
coming back to that over and over again. A lot of times we get, when we look at the prophets, we're just reading them for messianic verses. We forget that the whole discourse of what brought them to that moment, why they needed the Messiah, what was the hope of Israel, what was the lost hope of Israel, what were they battling about, over, with, internally, all those kinds of things, all the turmoil that was going on in there. It all went back to those first five books. And that even there in those first five books is the witness from Genesis chapter 3 that she would bear a son and that son would be their redemption in the crushing of the head of Satan. From very early on, that promise is there. All those messianic promises find their root from right there in the very first chapters of Genesis. And so the prophets are continually pointing back to those first five books, to Genesis, to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and saying, remember what these things said. They are they're there to just simply say and repeat everything that was already stated in the first five books. That's one of the things you learn quickly through the prophets is they're just literally quoting the Pentateuch. They're quoting that, the Torah, the first five books, over and over again because... God's people have the same problem that Adam and Eve had. They want it their way. They like it their way. And so pointing to the reality that God's people have consistently rejected Him and His servants throughout history. In fact, on this day, uh, we find over in Matthew and Luke, uh, uh, other uh, uh, you know, uh, writings there, uh, the reference of Jesus as he stood and looked at the city uh, after having ridden through it in his triumphal entry, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who, who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. Is this message throughout the entire weight of the Old Testament, throughout the weight of the Scriptures, that God's people have a tendency, well, not to listen to Him. Not you, of course, other people who are God's people. And so, in those moments, the other thing that we discover throughout the weight of the Old Testament uh, is that God has always had His remnant. Now, I know sometimes there's this kind of remnant theology that it is taking hold with a lot of folks. And, and I just want to tell you, please be careful with remnant theology. Uh, it's always dangerous when you decide that you are the remnant. Hello? Because in every generation, those who re were rebellious thought of themselves as the remnant. Let me say that again. In every generation... Those who were rebellious thought themselves to be the remnant, the true people. So that should always get our attention before we would become haughty or uh, think that we've got it all figured out. Hello? Anybody? Anybody? Maybe a few people admit you don't have it all figured out. Okay, so, um, and so God has had his remnant in every moment. And consistently, it's only been in retrospect that the majority have seen what God did and then repented. So that becomes the secondary message is that God sends His prophets. Uh, they preach and proclaim. The majority ignore what's being said. They, they, and they get carried away into captivity, right? That's what the Babylonian, that's what the Assyrian captivities are about. Over and over again, this kind of attitude on God's people that they go, Oh no, we got this. We got, we've got other prophets saying different things uh, that sound more confirming to the way we want to live and the things we like. I mean, you know, our, we think, you know, our country is the best. We think our ways are the best. And so surely the prophets that are agreeing with us are the right prophets. And the prophets that are telling us to wake up and to listen to the voice of the Lord, clearly those guys are just way off and, and don't know what they're talking about. And then in retrospect, the people go, hey, you know, if when I was, if I had been alive in Isaiah's day, if I had been alive when Jeremiah was preaching, man, I would have repented with them. I would have been part of the remnant. But the reality is, is 
The reason you're in Babylon and the reason you're in, Je- you're, uh, in Assyria is because your mama and your daddy didn't listen. Hello? And then you grew up in their house with that same set of values and that same theological teaching and those same rabbis who were also carried off into captivity. Hello? Isn't it amazing how quickly we will run to other people in the same condition we're in to find our hope, our healing, our therapy, our solutions. To drive home this passage then, John quotes from... uh, from Isaiah twice. The first time, verse 38, is from Isaiah 53, 1. And it's about the demonstration of God's power. It, this whole thing of the, the strong arm of the Lord is driving point in the text here in our discussion is that Jesus' miracles were numerous and noteworthy. And so when you and I look at the, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've been looking at is this biography that John did on the life of Jesus. Um, certainly we see that how the miracles of Jesus uh, are, are numerous and many, and they certainly qualify, right? I mean, if you're looking for amazing miracles in the Old Testament, uh, you know, it, it doesn't take long. When you compare those with the amazing miracles of Jesus, you go, that's, that's impressive, I mean, like, you know, sometimes we forget because, you know, we've been in church a long time, but like turning water into wine is one of the most amazing miracles in the entire Bible. It's not like he turned grape juice into wine overnight. That would be impressive all by itself. If you've, you know, I mean, if you've ever made wine, if you haven't made wine, let me just explain. It, it's not an overnight process, right? You've got to wait for the, everything to happen, and, and you've got to intervene. You've got to, you know, work in the process for that to happen properly, or you just get nasty. It just, it's yuck. You know, it may have alcohol in it, but it's not, it's nasty. Nobody wants to drink that stuff. And so it has to be properly cultivated. It takes time. So it'd be impressive enough if simply he just put, grape juice and a couple of vats and then prayed over them and it was instantly wine that was the best wine of the day after everybody had already had too much to drink. That'd be impressive enough. But he turns water into wine. That's a creative miracle. I mean, that's like, that's beyond uh, even multiplying the bread. Multiplying the bread is pretty impressive, right? I mean, you know, if you've ever had too many people over for dinner, you know how impressive it is when the food just simply multiplies. But not just that there was enough, but that there was more enough. Then they pick up basketfuls of bread, and uh, they didn't pick up basketfuls of fish. I'll just, you know, leave that to your imagination why that wouldn't be a good idea. Um, but there was more than enough. And the miracles and in, in, in every one of these miracles just like speaks of the demonstration of God's power, raising the dead, opening blind eyes. There's a part of us, if we're honest, that when we like look at those things, we think, well, why didn't just everybody believe? I mean, like, I, man, if I saw those things, you ever said this? If I saw those things, I would have believed, Right? And yet, he responds here with Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 61 to point out that even in the midst of the demonstrations of God's power throughout the ages, that the people who have been slow to respond should have been the first people to respond. It should have been God's people. They should have been the ones that are going, Wow, you know, that looks an awful lot like the hand of God in that moment. What should I do? Hmm, maybe I should listen and obey. I don't know, just kind of a crazy thought. Uh, uh, maybe I should listen and obey, and, and yet here's the thing is that they don't. So then he takes us to this 
other passage in Isaiah, somewhat rhetorical in nature, suggesting that they could not believe, if you look there in verse 40, specifically because of the proof that God provided. Let me explain what I'm saying here, is that because of the miracles, because of everything else, it's clear God is obviously making it too hard for them to realize that it's God. That's called sarcasm. The Bible's full of it, by the way. So if you don't like sarcasm, I'm sorry, but like all through the Bible, especially, especially Paul. Paul loves sarcasm. But nonetheless, the sarcasm is, well, clearly it's God's fault. I mean, all these signs and wonders and everything, you know, why didn't he just plainly tell us what it is? <laughs> Verse 42 then makes it clear. So it's not God that prevented them. It's that God offered them something they didn't really want. Have you ever prayed for God to resolve something and He didn't answer the way you wanted Him to answer? Me too. If I'm honest with you, I mean, I can think about some of those times where even now in my reflection, I'm just not sure why, why God, why didn't you do it this way? I mean... Some of those things were years in resolve. Some of those things are still somewhat unresolved. I have resolved internally because I trust Him, because I believe Him. I made up my mind a long time ago that I would trust Him, that I would believe that He was good in the midst of my trials, my difficulties and circumstances, not in the mix of going through those things, but I decided a long time ago looking at the weight of evidence from the Scripture that God is good and that we don't always understand what He's doing. And sometimes those things are hard, even for God's people. Sometimes it appears that both God's people and the opponents of God suffer the same circumstances, difficulties, trials. I mean, if you go back to like what happened in Egypt... In the plagues, if you read slowly and carefully, you begin to realize that, yes, Israel suffered about half the plagues also. They didn't escape. God was out changing minds, and Israel didn't understand what God was up to. It's clear because they... They left there and they go out into the wilderness and they still just kept fighting him at every turn. It's a common theme among God's people to just fight God, even as we say, oh God, why don't you? Oh God, when will you? Even in the midst of him working in us, through us, around us, and yes, often sometimes in spite of us. See, it's not a lack of evidence that prevented them. It wasn't a lack of signs and wonders. You ever say that? You know, God, if you would, you know, I, I think what you ought to do is like, you know, if I'm just going to pray for this person and you ought to heal them because then everybody would believe, right? Ever, ever thought like that? God, if you would just do this, then everybody would know. It's funny that, like, not everybody knows. No matter what, I mean, over and over again, the evidence, not even God's people. And so as they stayed with the majority, here's what they got out of it. They puffed each other up. They got their attaboys. They got to stay in the synagogue. They got to keep the praise of men. And so even though they looked and they saw what Jesus was doing, I want you to think about that. Let it really sink in, not... Not just kind of like run through it. I mean, dwell on it for a moment. What does it look like that Jesus is 
walking there on the earth and he's doing these amazing signs and wonders and a movement is growing around him and like you see that the Messiah has come. You, all the evidence is pointing, the scriptures are pointing, all the evidence should be like just pouring in. You would think by this point in time that you would be like going, gee, clearly maybe I don't get it entirely, but that looks a whole lot like God. Why don't I go join and find out? And yet they said, you know, <laughs> that's really cool, but I'm good. You know, over here at First Church of Small Town, we're quite happy with ourselves and everybody likes me. And if I started, you know, like talking like I believed in all that kind of stuff, somebody, you know, might call me a conspiracy theorist or a nutcase or what, you know, I mean. Uh, so I, I, just, I just feel more comfortable just hanging with my bros and everything's okay. See, it wasn't a lack of evidence that was stopping them. It was their own comfort. What if I was to tell everybody that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that He is coming back? What if I told them that I believe this and I put all my hope in this? What if I like share that with my friends, my neighbors, my family members, my boss, and everything? Like, what if it affects me? I mean, it, it, it can change everything in my life, in my workplace, in my school. And I mean, like uh, people might be uncomfortable with me. People might not like what I'm saying. Wouldn't it be better for me just to just be content with the praise of men and not say anything? I mean, what if I tell my cousin, my favorite cousin, and he doesn't like me anymore and quits inviting me over for the football game? What if my buddies won't have a beer with me anymore? What if they stop inviting me? What if I lose my job? Now let me say this to temper things just a little bit before you jump to conclusions. This is not like, hey, let's go embrace the fringe, okay? <laughs> I want to remind you that the zealots who brought the destruction of Jerusalem on their own city did so in their love of war and all things apocalyptic. They were the fringe. But can I also point out that the fringe also rejected Jesus. They thought they could bring the kingdom of God by attacking the government. Cuckoo is still cuckoo. Doesn't matter which end of the spectrum it's on. What John was talking about is God's evidence. I don't mean scriptures ripped out of context to fit whatever doctrine you want to make them fit to. I'm talking about the strong arm of Yahweh, the miracles, the signs, and the wonders, the historical witness of scripture, all mounting up together, all pointing to Jesus that they, and yet they could not see, hear, or receive it because they loved their own interpretations, their own kingdoms more than they wanted God. It wasn't that he didn't offer the kingdom, it's just that they liked their kingdom better. If we're honest, do you like your kingdom better? I mean, if the coming of the kingdom of God means turning your life upside down, which would you prefer? I, I, I'm not talking about your church answer. I'm talking about the answer internally in your heart right now. I'm talking about the one in the secret place right here. If it means your financial disadvantage, your discomfort publicly, might I suggest you've already answered it in what you actually do. I can remember a few years ago when a lot of people were being um, killed in like school shootings and things like that, and one of the things that came up was whether or not they would confess their faith. And I can remember all these teenagers who are now <clears throat> like 40, and... Um, they said, I don't know what I would do. 
And I remember saying very vividly as a youth pastor, if you won't tell your best friend who is perishing what you know, what makes you think you would give up your life? If you can't risk a few moments of embarrassment, if you can't well-known atheist Gillette Penner, Gillette Tell, uh, from Penner and Tell made the statement one time, he said, I have no respect for a Christian who won't share their faith because it's embarrassing. The thought that you would let someone stand in front of a bus and get run over because it would embarrass you means that you are the meanest person to have ever lived. On the other hand, he said, I have no issue with a Christian trying to evangelize me as an atheist because I know that they actually believe what they're saying. If you look at what they wanted, the religious leaders of the time, the glory of the temple restored, the triumph of God's chosen people over the godless, perverted Roman culture, even more debased than Western culture is now, I, I promise you, I can show you things from history books that will just shock you to find out what went on in that day and time. The arrogance of their kings and their politicians the hope that their synagogues would be filled once again and that their theaters would be and coliseums would be empty because they wanted to make Israel great again. All sounded really noble and godly. And yet they missed what God was doing on the earth. Can I be clear? God was not siding with godless wickedness. God was not siding with the kings and the politicians. God was not siding with debased moral behavior and sexual deviance. God was siding with the lost, the downtrodden, bringing hope and light into that which was hopeless and dark. If we connect that back to Zechariah 9 from last week. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set prisoners free from the waterless pit. That message of the kingdom that God was putting an end to war and speaking peace to the nations, meaning the lost, through the blood of His covenant and His rule extending over all the earth, even setting free those who have been demonized. That's, that, that, that was not a compromise with evil, nor was it about whatever party was in charge. Church, we don't run to the extreme. We won't run to the things of the earth any more than we want to take solace in the leadership of Israel's elite or Israel's fringe. What was the secret? See, they didn't understand. By John's own confession, they didn't understand what was going on, right? So what did they do? They stayed close to Jesus 
And they watched and they listened. What happened when Jesus died? They gathered together and they prayed. They sought the kingdom of heaven. They sought God's help. They sought wisdom. And, and they, they weren't running to the latest political thing. They weren't running to the politicians. They weren't running to the newspapers. They weren't running to hear what the latest prophetic word was. They gathered together. They put their heads down and they prayed. And they said, oh God, come. Maranatha, we need you. And we don't need all these other opinions. What we need is you. And in the midst of that, Jesus comes. You say, well, it was only three days. It was a long three days, I promise you. And when Jesus comes, they spend the next 40 days just gathered around him, listening, learning, determined not to know anything among the nations other than Jesus. They didn't dumb down the message. They just made the main things the main things, and they didn't preach their politics, their ideas. Don't misunderstand me. Everything they did preach had certain political ramifications. You're, you're right. But what they preached was Jesus. And then it says they prayed for the sick and they taught the good news and they gave their lives to the cause of God's kingdom rather than their own comfort. They cared for one another so well that the witness of John is that they would know that you are my disciples and the way that you love one another. And when we open the book of Acts, we see that in fact that's exactly what they did. So that even though signs and wonders were happening, and, and even Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead when they lied and stuff like that, and it says that nobody just dared join them on their own, but then it turns around and says, but God was adding to their number daily, those who were being saved. There was this sense of expectation. God's working in their midst, and even though they weren't out trying to convince everybody of their political party, they weren't trying to convince everybody of their fringe theology, they were just simply preaching Jesus, they were loving and caring for one another and God added not because their campaign was so slick not because it was in the Super Bowl commercials but because they did such a fantastic job of loving one another and loving his word like that was fire and it spread over the whole earth, still spreading today. During the triumphal entry, we're told many believed in Jesus. We're also told they chose their comfort and their position. And listen to the words of Jesus for the lost in verse 47. So if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Did you hear that? There is a judgment. It's coming on the last day. His words, the words of the prophets, the scripture, it will be the measuring stick. But the mission of Jesus was to bring hope and eternal life. He's the light for those in darkness. He's the, his goal was to win them, not to destroy them, not to defeat them, not to tell them how stupid they were, not to tell them how wrong they were, not to show them how much smarter we are, better we are, nothing like that. Jesus' mission was to rescue So here's my question. How could our mission be any different? 
if we're the people of Jesus. And Jesus said, I've come not to judge the world, but to save it. Is it really our job to constantly tell the world around us how awful it is? Would it really be our job to sit mockingly looking at other people who don't think like us, don't vote like us, don't agree with us? Would that ever be our job? I mean, ever. I know how we can justify it. We can take prophets out of context. But if I'm on the mission of Jesus, then my mission would be, I've come not to judge the world, but to save it. And Jesus said he was on the Father's mission. He, he couldn't decide anything else either. He could only do what the Father is doing. He says it repeatedly. Then Jesus says very specifically, verse 50, and this is the commandment of the Father, eternal life. So what else can we do? Except that you and I would bring hope to those who are perishing, light to those who are in darkness, that we would refrain Though we may certainly have our own opinions, our judgments, our thoughts about the mo- uh, those situations and the moments, that our, our goal, our, our life would be poured out in the service of leading people to eternal life. It's not that we're agreeing with bad behavior. It's not that we're saying it's okay. It's not we're trying to baptize it in or pretend like it doesn't exist or anything else. It's, it's not that we just turn off our brains, that we stop living for the truth. It's that in the midst of all of that darkness, all of that pain, that we keep pointing there is a way there is hope there is life follow me as i follow christ follow me to hope follow me to resurrection but i judge you not because there is a judge and on that day his words will be true but i want none to perish Oh, well, the good news is after baptism, we still finished on time. Now, the good news is that the heart of the Father and the heart of the Son was not to condemn the world. That included you, right? See, the one thing I don't want to do in bringing like, that, that point to a, a fine tip is I don't want to poke your eye out. What I want us to do is give everybody in the world the same benefit of the doubt that you got when you were coming. I want them to get the same hope that gets you up in the morning. I, I want them to have the same hope that fills your soul. That, do you remember that day of your baptism uh, when you made that public confession and that sense of, of hope, of, of that the future was yours to possess through the power of the Holy Spirit and that God was doing new things in your life and you could feel His presence at work within you. There was a sense of anticipation that Jesus is coming back. And I'm on his team. I want them to have, to hear the words of John 3.16, for God so loved the world and not retranslated as that God was so irritated with it and disappointed with everyone around him that he sent his son to get all you idiots in line. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son to save it. It's not that it doesn't need judging or doesn't need correcting. 
but that he wants to save it. That he gave his life to save it. And so our mission is to seek the same. There's no lack of clarity. The only thing there can be now is a lack of love for those who are perishing or a lack of love for his mission. And we as Jesus' disciples are called to love God, to love people, and to pass it on. Let's stand together, shall we? So where are you in the journey? Maybe you are someone here who have been walking with Jesus a long time, and, um, you know, you just find yourself uh, having got wrapped around the axle. All the stuff. I mean, I, I, I get it. Social media constantly pumping things into us. Uh, you know, uh, people's unkindness uh, irritating us. Uh, you, know, I, 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 you know, I had to be reminded that just this week. I was, I was in a, uh, a thing about uh, football. I know this, you're thinking, really? No, I was in a, you know, and the, somebody from an opposing team that I just don't, you know, I wasn't trying to stir anything up, and they just went into personal attacks on me, you know? And I was like, wow, that really, personal attacks over a football game? That seems really shallow and everything. But the more they attacked me, the more I began, you know, I started to recognize it, you know, that, that, that deep internal struggle where I'm kind of like, you know, Oh, God, you know, deal with this person. No, you know. <laughs> I bet you can imagine. No, I bet you know, just like I know. That real things happen to us, conversations, uh, heated arguments, uh, sometimes over important things, sometimes over less important things, you know. Not sure exactly where football fits in that one on you, but, uh, but uh, my point being, It's easy to want to persuade people to our point of view. It's easy to get wrapped up in winning. And what Jesus says is the only win is where you and I introduce people to the Father. And in inducing them to the Father that they come to know Him as their Father. They become children of the living God. Have their hope in the resurrection and the life to come. In the midst of that, like all those other things becomes secondary, tertiary, maybe, maybe completely unimportant because I recognize that. And so maybe for you this morning, it's a moment of saying, you know, God, I'm sorry that I've made that which isn't the most important thing the most important thing. Please help me to reprioritize this moment in my life. Help me to reorganize my life around the things of the kingdom. To listen to your voice. To follow hard after you, no matter what the situation, the circumstance, or who it is that's in my sights. The other part of it is simply that maybe... Maybe the Lord has been tugging at you today and you're here and like on one hand there's this interest in Jesus but on the other hand you have been the target of some of that kind of aggression. You can point to me people that are Christians that haven't been nice or you can point to me someone who's been very condemning. Uh, you could point to me maybe to someone uh, who has uh, fought with you over politics or uh, uh, any number of different things that socially, emotionally, politically, whatever it might be, and they have become, and for you, a roadblock toward Jesus. But you know that Jesus is calling you. You sense his presence, you feel his work in your heart and life, and you're asking yourself, like, how do I say yes to you when I have to say yes to that? And they've lumped, you've maybe lumped all of us into that category. I want to simply say to you to begin with, I'm so sorry. 
because I've been that person at times in my life. I'm sorry I chose something so insignificant as more important than you. What I want to tell you is that along the way, in my walk with Jesus, I stumbled over a lot of people too. But you can trust Him. See, He's using ordinary, flawed people. You will be one of them. When you allow Him into your life, uh, you are going to experience such great joy, His passion, His presence, and unfortunately, you will not yet be transformed. And in that process of transformation, you will become more and more like Him. I can't wait. But right now, you come to Him just as you are. That's how we all come. Battered, bruised, messed up, jacked up in our thinking. You don't get it all straight before you come to Jesus. You just come to Him. And so I'm going to invite our prayer team people to come on up, and I want to invite you. I don't care where you are on the spectrum, right? Like whether it's that you are coming toward Jesus or you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and let other things become the main thing. Whatever the, whatever the distractions, whatever the reasons might be that you haven't been faithful, haven't been fulfilling, haven't been fruitful, uh, whatever it is, like I just want to invite you to come get some prayer today. So, Father, we come before you in the mighty name of Jesus We're grateful for his sacrifice. We're grateful for the gift of eternal life that he purchased with his blood on the cross. We're grateful for his triumph over death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And Lord, we're believing that you have this same thing for us, that you are inviting us into your kingdom, that one day we will live and reign with you forever. And that in the interim, right here and now, that by your Spirit, that we might be washed, refreshed, and empowered to live a kingdom life now. We ask, would you not only invade our hearts, our space, and rescue us, but would you set us on the mission? Would you send us to the very ends of the earth for your mission? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Let me encourage you to get some prayer. If you've got kids in kids' church, let me encourage you to go grab them first, then come back in here and get some prayer. Otherwise, I hope to see you next week. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others? by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.